Hey friends, we've got an important show today. It's not something I really am excited to talk about, but it's something that I think is important because this episode is part of a series that we're doing on health. You know, what we're bringing into ourselves through music, art, especially food, but really we're talking about education. And so as we're here recording, we're thinking this is a time when there's a lot of controversy surrounding this concept of critical race theory. And it's also something that potentially can be used by church-related schools to attract people who don't want to deal with the tough issues of race, just like they might not want to deal with other tough issues that they associate with the mainstream public schools. I want to say that, uh, I, that I really come to you, and so does Stacy, with uh, sincerity and concern for the well-being of all. Uh, for love for colleagues, love for all teachers, love for all church-related schools, but I realize that these interconnected concepts, concepts of theology and the roles of family members and hierarchy and authority and our view of race and our view of how we should look at race is really important. That is to say, in the family, if we ignore problematic past behaviors and realities, that doesn't bring healing. And if we're teaching history and we refuse to look critically at the ways in which America has a uncomfortable uh, relationship with, with justice and with race, then that's, that's gaslighting on a, on a grand scale. And as much as I'd love to ignore it, I think it's important for us to talk about it today. So we're glad you're with us. Uh, I hope that you'll extend us a little bit of charity because we're going to go right at it. Here we go. Wow, Stacy! I think we should do a show that is totally safe and risk-free, and everybody will love us because we did so great with the vaccine show. We should now address something fun like... Critical race theory. Oh, and if you can hear in the background, that is the... That is the... Uh, train. The train that we used to see every day when we were surfing down at uh, San Clemente. Uh, we, are, we are at our, uh, our little spot here in Dana Point known as Mallinson Cove to a lot of my family. I was kind of thinking about how in K-12 through education in America, there is a, a hysteria, a, a com listen, a completely irrational hysteria about critical race theory being taught in the schools, and people are getting fired up by, you know, Fox News and Tucker Carlson and saying, hey, you know, let's, uh, let's go petition the schools. And I'm always thinking, one of these days, somebody's going to say, hey, let's go, uh, let's go protest Mallinson. Let's go, let's go picket Mallinson's classes. Uh, maybe, he's, uh, maybe he's teaching critical race theory. So let me, just, uh, let me just cut to the chase, friends. I, of course, teach critical race theory. I'm a professor. <laughs> but I'm not saying that I indoctrinate students into critical race theory um, as if it's this thing, this kind of uh, very um, conspiratorial um, you know, kind of agenda that I have. What I do have is an agenda to give people the eyes of Christ to understand what's going on with the domination system, with the least, the last, and the lost. And uh, at the very minimum, you know, I think people should definitely learn about critical race theory 
at least at the college level, but it's not something that you're really going to get at K through 12 schools. And that's what I think is really funny about it. Most people, most even professors that I know, don't know much about what critical race theory really is. And I, I'm very sure that most fifth grade teachers are not not really that well versed in it. Now, maybe they are now because, gosh, it's been such a big deal in the news. But certainly 10 years ago, nobody would have been talking about it. It made me uncomfortable because it reminded me of something um, that my uh, one of my first great students has researched and, and has gone on to get a PhD and, and, uh, and has gone on to uh, write a book, an article about, and that is this idea of the orders of creation. Now, I have a hard time saying the German word. The Germans tend to put a bunch of words together and they call it a word, but the, uh, the idea of this theology of, of, uh, of the orders of creation is known as Schopfungsordnungslehre. And so this Schopfungsordnungslehre is the idea that the, the things that we see in society, the hierarchies, male and female, gender roles, father and children, authoritarian roles, uh, respect for the government, the state, all of that is not just a construct of our current urbanized, industrialized society. It's exactly the way God created the world. Mm. That is the current structure, the, the authorities that are existing today are exactly the way God wants them to be. And therefore, to challenge it or to ask to revise it or amend it or engage maybe creative thinking on whether another world is possible, all of that becomes heresy by itself. Mm. And, you know, we were talking recently about the reform tradition and how it has a certain kind of emphasis on sovereignty, the sovereignty of God that then is handed off to the sovereignty of parents and, and fathers and husbands and so forth. Uh, that's, that's something that's a concern. But my student, Ryan Taflowski, he noted that this idea of the orders of creation, you know, has been problematically uh, related to this idea that the German Christians and, and theologians and ethicists in Germany in the 30s actually provided kind of a, an intellectual underpinning that seemed reasonably Lutheran, but it, it provided this underpinning that allowed the Nazis to take over the church. Now, before you get all frustrated and say, hey, Mallinson, it's not really polite to go around saying to people that you know, hey, this is Nazi. I'm not saying it's Nazi. I'm saying that being too fast and loose with this idea of the two kingdoms in Lutheran theology uh, or the orders of creation, these things, and even, and even uh, in some senses vocation, uh, if you understand, say, the idea that in my vocation as a father, I might be loving and kind towards my child, as in the vocation of a pastor, I might care about Jewish people. But in my vocation as a soldier, maybe I fight and kill Jewish people because I've been commanded to. Now, certainly all Christians always have the caveat that you should obey God rather than men. But there's this idea, I think, that's very problematic that leads to very problematic behaviors. And it leads to, I think, I think it leads to rape culture. I think it leads to, um, I mean, of course, indirectly, it leads to, um, you know, cruelty towards LGBT people because they're not fitting the gender roles that are part of this. Uh, and then it also tends to, to support racism. Now you say, oh, that, come on now, Mallinson. Well, strangely, 
As my student, uh, my former student, Taflowski, writes in his uh, article, A Reappraisal of the Orders of Creation, uh, he writes about this guy, Paul Althaus. And, the, and the, re, the really weird irony is that Paul Althaus was somebody who wrote a book called The Ethics of Martin Luther. And in fact, I've seen this on colleagues' shelves. I think I might have even had it. It's a relatively acad academic and accurate view of the ethics of Martin Luther. But what he says as we're seeing the lead-up to the National Socialists, a.k.a. the Nazis, is is really distressing. And there's there's worse passages that I could read from some of these guys, but this one I think is is kind of helpful. Uh, let me just read this. This is again from Paul Althaus, and it's about ethnic segregation in Germany. He writes, quote, In the classification of humanity into races and peoples, we recognize the creative richness of God, which establishes individual life here as it does everywhere. But this classification is at the same time segregation, the peoples not only live next to one another, but they must also, to a large extent, stand against one another. It's this kind of idea of almost like a social Darwinism, mm. that God has created the world with competition and domination so that the strong overcome the weak. And as sad as it is for the weak to be crushed, that's the system. Mm. And so again, the system, the statism, is all kind of bound up in this idea that we, that we should support this. Uh, it continues... Or, or Althaus continues, there is an antipathy that separates the races and peoples, and this intuition cannot be eradicated by consciously repressing it in the name of philanthropy or the brotherhood of humanity. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So, you, so we are basically racist. We can't get rid of it. It's put there by God. Racism is how we're made, and so therefore we roll with it, right? And so... He says, hey, look, this is, this is just how it is. And then he, then he goes on. He says, you know, we cannot abolish segregation and struggle without destroying God's creation. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you don't have to put somebody in a, in, a, in a gas chamber to have indirectly supported that and, and made that possible, especially if you're an ethicist in the Lutheran tradition. You're calling yourself a Christian. Right. That's scary thinking. So when you look at that, you'd say, all right, to me, when we're looking to teach Lutheran educators especially Lutheran educators, because this is our tradition. I don't really care how big of a deal it is, let's say, in the public schools. What I worry about when I see people in, in Lutheran land talking about critical race theory, I think in some ways it's a, it's a marketing tool, right? Don't go... Oh, Don't go to the public schools. That's where you're going to get critical get race theory. Or something. They're going to teach you that it's okay to be gender non-binary. They're going to tell you that there's global warming you know? right. So, to the best you can, will you explain to me what critical race theory actually is? Yes, and by no means am I an expert in it. What I'm, what I'm somebody who spends a lot more time in uh, would be the primary sources. So let me, let me start from that just for a second. Um, this is the first year that I've taught America in the world. I've been teaching the West in the world, so I kind of start with uh, you know, Enkidu and Gilgamesh and make my way... Uh, in the in the general studies survey in our in our core, uh, we'll probably drop off at like Locke, early modern philosophy. Well, then we pick it up with the founding of America, right? So we're moving from the 18th century to the present. And even though these are things I've I've read about before, I never had to put together the reader and ask those questions. You know what? Oh, what was the history of America? Yeah, right? what is the story? How does it all fit together? I never really had to see it as one fabric, and it really. It really struck me in a way that has never struck me before that that whatever some people are worried about with respect to critical race theory, 
they should be worried about it. That is to say, if you want to give people the sense that America should be a, a believed in or endorsed uncritically, then the way you do that is you you make America to be the good guy and you mm, whitewash it. Right. I mean, I have to say it was emotionally difficult for me, and I did not, I did not, um, I did not go out selecting antagonistic pieces. I just was I was drawing from a lot of different stuff. Uh, but I, you know, we're looking at Equiano's slave narrative, where black people that are ripped from their homes are jumping out of the slave ship to die instead of go to slavery. Uh, Haitian, indigenous Haitian mothers drowning their babies because if they're girls, they're going to end up as sex slaves. If they're boys, they're going to be uh, worked to death as slaves by the Spanish. Um, the horrendous treatment on the Trail of Tears by Andrew Jackson's uh, government. Uh, the illegitimate takeover of of uh, Mexican territory, um, just horrendous stuff, lynchings by the KKK, it's in there. And, and I think what really makes me nervous is when Americans don't want to say, well, we repent of this, let's not focus on it, but rather they want to say, that's not true, that's gaslighting. Yeah. And I don't care if it's in, I don't care if it's in a bad taste for some American conservatives. I'm telling you, um, if evil things happened and they they happened under the banner of America and it's bad for the brand and we're unwilling to say that, that's exactly how abuse happens in all communities. When you think about, even just think of our, our families. Denying. Right, but think yeah. of our families. Think of like sometimes our recollection of childhood and yeah. how we, we'll bring up a story, you know, to one of our parents or whatever and they're like, oh no, no, that didn't happen. Like that's one of the most like frustrating and defeating things is like that was your lived experience, right? And mm. to have, because it was uncomfortable for them to remember that, you know, then, then they change, they rewrite the past, right? Mm -hmm. Or gloss over certain details that were actually pretty formative in who we are as people. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is that's kind of happening in the grander scale, like with America's yeah. history. Yeah, well, that didn't happen. That abuse didn't happen. And fundamentally, the, you know, um, what are the structures and the cultural arrangements that that took place maybe a couple hundred years ago, 50 years ago, that we're still living with today, right? This is now taking me to the answer to your question, which is this is basically legal scholars of color in the 1970s were trying to make sense of something that any student of the primary sources in America should find interesting, if you're really seeing it soberly. And I saw it, which is how is it that you have the Civil War and the, and the Union wins and slavery is abolished, and yet cruelty continues. People live as if it's not emancipation. Right after the Civil War, you start to see a lot of, um, you see a lot of black politicians in uh, the government. Mm. They, they start coming in, and very, and it was like kind of like where, it was kind of like when you know uh, Nelson Mandela gets out of prison, and now he's he's in this country that had been apartheid, uh, had, had had embraced apartheid, and now. Now they got a black president. There was this kind of exuberance. Mm. There was this, hey, let's uh, let's celebrate this new new era that we're in. And you know, I taught one of my my first college that I taught at was Union College. Down the road was Lincoln College. These were places in Appalachia that were kind of celebrating the overthrow of the slave system and kind of showing their loyalty to the system. So you know, I uh, I think that what's really sad about it is the backlash after the people who had 
had to live without now having free labor, mm -hmm. started to see their standard of living going down. Mm. And, uh, and when you're in that spot, white, rich people that are now feeling undervalued, uh, right. they're feeling less important, they're feeling poorer, and they're going to blame the, the, the black people now that, right. that now society, are... changes in society yeah. is the problem. And they're going to compete for jobs now with these people if they're poor. And so that's a, that's a humiliation for the southern you know, slaveholding culture. So really what, what, the, what the KKK was, was, uh, was an attempt by people to intimidate, terrorize black people into not becoming fully empowered. So they're allowed to vote, but they're not voting. And then the same thing happens then. Later, you have the civil rights uh, movement, and legislation is passed, and yet people are still experiencing all sorts of problems, right? And in fact, sometimes you could see that people were changing their minds about race and actually embracing people of color and saying, hey, I'm, I, I don't want to be a racist anymore. And, and that's really where we get to critical race theory. Critical race theory is trying to say, what's going on structurally that is causing this racism in the world, even when we don't intend it, right? right. So in other words... Well, like SAT. Yeah. Uh, like the way that they're designed, the questions that they use, and, and like even the, the very way that the test is probably... You know, proctored or whatever. Yeah. All of it. There's there's advantages to white people over black people in in some of those sets, or or, or depending on you know how, your education, right? And like mm -hmm. you're supposed to maybe all be at a certain level, but if there's areas that don't teach certain things, then they can't possibly compete on the SAT. Well, and sometimes the areas don't teach things as well because of economic disparity based on segregation in housing. Right. So right. there are these structural ways in which uh, sometimes very explicitly there was redlining, but there are ways in which you create these segregations in the world and that the schools that are impoverished are also going to have difficulty getting those students to the place they need to be. But, you know, when I heard that that, uh, that the SAT might be racist, there was a long time ago I heard this. Right. I thought that's that's so dumb. That's so. That's so woke. But I didn't say woke at the time, right? That's, that's like liberal. Um, and the thing is, when we were in the year 2001, and we took our own son to school. Uh, where, where his uh, neck, knuckles? It's like knuckles? Knuckles. Knuckles. Where's your knuckles? And so, so he thought he was he thought it was a necklace, and he's like, I don't have I don't have a necklace, and they're like, oh, he doesn't know where well, you know what his knuckles are. Right. So he of course he qualifies for this preschool. So if you grew up with a different accent, people could say you're stupid when in fact you're not stupid. Uh, you just you're just using a different dialect. Or you're seeing things in a different way. So in any case, really precisely the problem with liberalism is it sometimes finds itself all caught up in appearances and externals and sentiment and doesn't really get to the root, the radix of the problem. So that's why, you know, I think the, the language of being radical, although sometimes that, that scares people, is scary because it's not reformist. It's not saying, let's just try to do a little bit better. Let's have an HR department, you know, just come in and help us to be more sensitive and uh, confront our own bias. Those are important things. And goodness knows that if you are a, a, a minority of any kind uh, in, a, in a space, uh, at a work or a school, then people being mean to you is a drag. It really can be debilitating sometimes. 
uh, and, and, and cause you to not feel safe and people uh, treating you with disrespect because of some aspect of yourself, uh, where you come from, who you are, that's a, that's a bummer, right? But the thing that really is more important, according to really critical race theorists, is the idea that whether or not individuals in a workplace are themselves racist, if the structure is racist, then there's a problem that's arguably more important. I would say it's more important in to the extent that we can always work on people's relationships at some point, but but creating an unjust economic system or creating a place where there's an unjust housing system or having a, a prison system where there is a vastly uh, disproportionate rate of people of color being incarcerated. And, and we have so many people in the prison system. And then we have uh, some people saying, well, you know, the black community is the way it is. It's so riddled with crime because they don't have dads. Yeah, but often dads in prison because of this very problem, right? Um, of course, I'm not saying that this is true in every uh, corner of the world. And that's the whole point. Your town might be great. Your family might be great. You might be great. But if you're living in a world that has these subconscious or unconscious biases that are systemic apart from the individuals, that's something that anybody who is a, a decent person, a person who wants to follow the way of Jesus to help the least, the last, and the lost, to help all of our human family, well, we're going to want to confront it. We're going to want to confront it because we love people, and we love people because this is what Jesus would have us do, right? Or we just love people because we love people. But regardless, it's not about shaming people. I think it was another train. What's, more, what's most interesting to me is that I think a lot of folks don't like this idea of tough discussions about the racist history of America because it makes them feel ashamed or, or they think the schools are trying to make you feel ashamed to be white. No, as we've talked about on the show, we're interested in discernment. Discernment is understanding and perceiving the reality of a situation with deep grace. Judgment is condemnation with contempt. We don't have to, we don't have to have contempt for people in the past, but we should definitely observe the way the structures they established related to the way uh, people were allowed to be slaves in America and related to the ways in which they were not given full access to opportunities in the segregation system and the Jim Crow era and even today the the problem of police violence you know it makes me really uncomfortable that the number one re response to a lot of conservative Christians isn't to say, oh, man, we should repent. We should try to do something about this when we see the George Floyd murder or, or, or all the other stuff that has been going on. Um, when people say, ah, what we should be doing now is going and marching at schools and picketing schools to make sure they're not doing uh, critical race theory because it's Marxist, uh, look in the mirror, man. I, I'm, I'm woe unto you. Repent. This is not. This is not okay. To, to to respond to somebody having a knee on their neck until they die with we're teaching that the that America is too racist is very problematic. Well, and and we're called what to uh, to repentance, which is basically kind of like when you see life in a whole different in a whole different view in a whole different way. And so if you know if something you didn't recognize is 
you know, something that actually has happened and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I'm not going to stand for that. Let's now make changes and, and, and do something to make sure that, that other people don't keep getting hurt in these same ways. Yeah, or, open your eyes. And as, and as my student, uh, Ryan Taflowski, will say, he actually believes that the orders of creation aren't something you have to throw out, but it's something to be very careful with. And in fact, this is true for my old, uh, uh, you know, the, the guy I replaced at the League of Faithful Masks, Uva Simonetto. I'll link to his book. Uh, he he writes that Luther does not contribute to racism, ultimately, in, in Germany. When he experienced it as a kid during World War II, it was Lutheran organists and uh, and mayors that stood their ground using the idea of vocation to stand against Hitler. I get it. I get it. It's true. But I think this piece is a little bit more fundamental to the problem. I know what Uwe's saying, and I, and I agree with the points that he makes, but the general picture, I think, is that with the exception of, uh, like, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, uh, to some extent, Karl Barth, who was Calvinist in a way, he was Reformed, not, not Lutheran, they said this is what leads to the problem. You know, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer saw it in the, in the early days. So it's not, uh, it's not a new thing. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, it's not a new thing to say uh, that there is a connection between our anti-immigrant ideology, our, anti, uh, our, our, our misogynistic view of the family, and these racist ideologies that we allow within the structures of our society as they relate to policing and other things. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. I don't necessarily even need to prove to anybody it's there, but I can tell you, dear listener, that having studied this and having looked at it as closely as I could, I see that there is a connection between this way of thinking, this hierarchical thinking, and most of the problems that ail society and the problems definitely that ail the churches. The idea that we can't actually see the problem because we've already told ourselves to look at the problem as something we should protest. Right. How else do you, how else do you learn if you don't first see and admit what the truth in the past is. Right. So if you want to talk about unity and healing divisions and the only way you get there is by ignoring the trauma, that's that's the gaslighting that we're getting pretty tired of. You know, you mentioned already some of the hysteria and stuff, you know, evolving around evolving around critical race oh, theory. Oh, it's going mad around the country. And I think, honestly, what's so strange, I even um, saw like a little video on social media where a newscaster was talking to to an older white gentleman and basically saying, what do you think about critical race theory? And he was saying, oh, it's terrible. I don't like it at all. And then he said, well, can you explain, you know, a little bit about, he couldn't say anything about what critical race theory is. But he knew it was the biggest problem in America. Yeah, that's what he said was the biggest problem in America right now. And I guess part of it is that there's this, this fear that's being attached to this without even really understanding or acknowledging exactly what it is. Use something like critical race theory just to spread fear and you know what I mean that just mm. that just is going to make the problem worse mm. and it isn't helpful whatsoever mm. now as a christian anarchist you know i'm i'm interested sometimes in marxist and neo marxist critiques uh, really what what you see especially with uh, libertarians on the left is that at first they seem to have a common car cause with marx at the first international but eventually they go their separate ways there's a divorce and the divorce is over the thing that we can see in Cuba uh, with, with Fidel Castro or Chairman Mao in China or Stalin or Pol Pot or the Viet Cong, that there is a kind of authoritarian cruelty that comes with, um, 
what they call the tankies, you know, the Marxist-Leninists. And, uh, and yet, I think because that is so damnable, it really is, that world, that world of, of violent, uh, you know, Marxist-Leninist communism was so cruel that it is as dangerous as Nazism in terms of human toll. More people died. I think, though, it's a really convenient way for people not to address their own racism. In other words, don't bother me about the poor people because um, th- that is going to lead to to Stalinism. That's going to lead to whatever that was. And then, therefore, don't bother me about race and, and critique of race and structures and cultural hegemony along the lines of Antonio Gramsci, who is somebody that is a neo-Marxist that kind of and involves go us. Go ahead and devi- define cultural hegemony. Let me get to that in a second. Okay. But the, the idea is that these guys are really, really interesting. That is, Marx does diagnose the problem. He, he diagnoses the problem that most of you, dear listener, if, if, if you work as a wage slave every day, you probably know. You get up, you have five cups of coffee, you race to, the, to work, you're, you're bored, it's meaningless, you're in your cubicle, you're in your office, you're just grinding, grinding, grinding. You get home, you drive for an hour in your car, you just want to eat, have sex, fall asleep, and start it over. And sometimes you're too tired to have sex, so you just sleep and start over. You're often too tired to actually make your dinner, so you just grab something quick. Oh, yeah, so you're living an unhealthy life, and you're in the people storage, and all this. Anyway, Marx does not have a good answer for it, and ultimately... Uh, the, his his legacy, I think, leads to something that's just far more bleak even. You know, uh, Soviet-era architecture and life is not something I'd like to have tried. <laughs> it's not, not what I want to do. Uh, it's not the Shire, you know, of the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. But, um, but at the same time... Um, you know, so yeah, you mentioned critical, uh, no, um, Antonio cultural, Gramsci. Cultural hegemony. Cultural hegemony is totally worth paying attention to. You know, um, again, you're not worried if somebody's colored, like, oh, I'm colorblind. Uh, I, I don't see race. That's not, that's not what you're worried about. Or I'm not racist. I have black friends. I don't care, right? I want to know what, what you're doing, what you're putting in place that's causing people to not have access to education or opportunity, right? Or maybe you're not putting it in. You think it's inevitable, so you're going to keep it going. Cultural uh, hegemony is, uh, I think, the most important concept that uh, Gramsci has. And I, I encourage people to go look it up and see what it is because it's really interesting. It's interesting, friends, because it's how you can get manipulated. Now, maybe you're like a super powerful rich person with, with uh, all the access to things that you need. And maybe you want to use this ideological force for your own ends. Maybe cultural hegemony is something for you to understand so that you can use it as a dark art against us. But for most of us, we're getting manipulated. And ultimately what it means is that we have a dominator society, or in the, the dominant members of society create a, a, a way of thinking, a worldview, an ideology that has hegemony over us. Now, if you think about hegemony in political sense, um, America has hegemony in the, in the Western Hemisphere, right? Um, or you might have Rome had hegemony over the Mediterranean. It means that you have a kind of political military control, mm. right? Uh, you have influence. But cultural hegemony is the ways in which the dominator society can create within the oppressed and people who are kind of at the bottom of society mm-hmm. a sense that they have no choice but to exist within it. So let's look, look not at Lutheranism, let's look at Hinduism, right? Um, 
I love stuff about Hinduism. Is it also a buy-in into it, too? Oh, you you totally do. So that you think that this is the way it should be, or... Yeah. So, you know, that, like, of course, parents should spank, spank their kids, or... You know, that kind of thing. If you... You've been taught that spanking your kids is really important. When you were a kid, you didn't like it, but now you've been, you've been socialized into thinking that that's what you've got to do. But I was going to say about Hinduism. So, and I don't advocate for spanking children. No, no I'm saying that's how... That, that's, <laughs> but that's what I'm trying to... The reason we think it's good to spank our kids is because we were spanked. It's right. like this way in which we're the victims and then we become the oppressors. Right. But it's because we get, we get absorbed into the worldview. So in, in, in India, it's very hard to imagine how you're going to overcome inequity when part of the ideology is you're working out your karma from the past life. So even if you're rich or poor, if you buy into that idea of the caste system, then the rich can control the poor by getting them to think that that's what they need to do. Or as Bob Marley said, uh, he's saying, some people think great God come from the sky, take away everything and make everybody feel high. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth and then you will see the light. You will stand up for your rights. The idea is he was confronting this idea that Christianity was being used, and it was, to keep poor people from standing up for their rights because they were told, you're not going to have a happy life now because God has faded you to this poopy existence. Well, and, and everything will be perfect in heaven, though, so don't worry about whatever your lot is in this life, that it'll be different in the afterlife. So, again, uh, Gramsci and Zizek and Marx, they have really interesting insights, and they're totally worth reading. Everybody can get something out of them. But ultimately, their, uh, their formula for success is going to be patently problematic because you can see how people have tried it, and it's not worked. Um, but in any case, I think the bigger issue is that so many people who are worried about critical race theory are using that kind of Red Scare, Cold War era uh, uh, fear to get people to say, oh, no, right. if we start confronting racism in the public schools, then um, then we're going to have we're going to have communism take over. Listen, that's that's disingenuous. And if it's not disingenuous, you're not I'm not really trusting you with my kids. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if yeah. you don't realize, I mean, like, I don't trust you either way. But but I'm saying I don't even know. Like, I've been back and forth on this. If I got a if I got a worry that both the public schools and certainly the Christian schools are going to be bullied into not talking about the reality of history, then yeah, like let's homeschool our kids. And then you can homeschool your kids into your whack ideology uh, on your own. But I'm, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I trust any of this. You know, uh, I really want to be able to give people an education because education is power. But a fake education, that's worse than no education sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Because you get you get stuck in your ways because you think, oh, I got an A plus in history, but my history was whitewashed. Yeah. Well, oh, that's yeah. the poison pill. Now you say, oh, I don't care about race. All right. How about this? A lot of people getting engaged. We're coming to the end of the semester. People are going to go away for Thanksgiving break. Sometimes people take their beloved uh, on, a, on a Thanksgiving break to see their parents. Maybe, and this is the key, people ask, should I ask Dr. Mallinson, should I ask the, the father of my girlfriend for her hand in marriage? You know what the question is, right? Well, I know that, the, that our, our answer to that would be no. But traditionally, uh, you know, even what, as 
you know, we even came before my parents, right, and talked to them before we got engaged. Yes. Because that was, that was sort of what, you do. what we were, you know, taught and told, like, was what was done. Um, but I, if you think really through the implications of that, that that if you have to ask for the daughter's hand in marriage, then that technically means that you own the daughter and that now the daughter is going to be given over to somebody else. And my concern with that is that also sets up that couple's relationship for difficulty later on when they yeah. do have to break through, free, free of some of the thoughts and right. thinking of the parents, maybe in perhaps even the raising of their own children and how they decide to do that, or who knows. But there could be multiple things that the parents are, will be you know, frustrated with that the couple has to make decisions on their own. And ultimately, I think in almost every couple's lifetime, there becomes a, a there comes to a point where you do have to kind of separate what is best for you and your family from what the parents on one side or the other think is, yeah. is, is you know, what they would want. But it's, um, it's born, this idea of asking for the father's hand in marriage is born out of a terrible concept, which is you as a woman are owned by this your dude. Your property. And the only way to get away from that guy is to be handed, literally handed from him to you. So I would say, and this is what I say to students, if, if, uh, if I have a daughter and you ask for my daughter's hand in marriage, I would tell you uh, n- no, because if you have to ask permission, I won't give you my permission. <laughs> of course, I don't. it's a kind of a joke because I'm not saying that I really have to be appeased. I'm saying... If you really want to know, I don't endorse this relationship if you think that you've got to ask the, some the, other dude. My daughter yeah. will now become your property. You only need one person's permission, my daughter's. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so well, why do well, I and, mention and, this? And, and also the other part, to be fair, is if the couple isn't mature enough to kind of make this decision on their own for themselves, I don't right. think they're ready to be in a marriage relationship. I'm very happy to give you my advice. But anyway, I'm happy to tell you whether I like you or whether you're welcome in this family. Those are great questions. You know, will I do? do, Is it a good idea? I mean, what should I do? And this is what I'm thinking of. I'll I'll gladly talk to you about it. But that idea that I would like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage is a problem. Now, the reason I bring it up to kind of close our conversation here is that I think it helps illustrate something about the orders of creation and critical race theory, which is. Very often on Bachelorette, the person asking for somebody's hand in marriage <laughs> is not interested in sex slavery. They're not interested in misogyny. They may be egalitarian, right? Yeah. But if that's the structure, then you're bowing before an idol of hierarchy. And it's funny, too, on Bachelorette because they do, you know, that conversation, if it's going to happen, often happens in person, and the only opportunity is when they're still dating three other people, and so <laughs> basically they might be asking four sets of parents for their daughter's hands in marriage. Right. Um, and I know that some of the fathers have kind of been disturbed by that, saying, how can I possibly say yes to this mm-hmm. when you're not, I'm not, you're not even sure that it's my daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. But, you know, anyway, so... It's, it's just kind of interesting because what does that even mean then to ask four different fathers for mm. four different women's hands in yeah, marriage? Yeah, I know. That's really weird. Anyway. But you see how, though, that the structure itself, the practice itself, is something that's in the tradition. It is something that many Christians say is God-ordained. 
like that you have to do that, like that God wants you to do that, and that's built into the orders of creation. Well, I think we need to take that uh, and, and really start to understand it and understand it critically, right? I want critical <laughs> marriage theory. I want critical thinking. You yeah. know, and when you get to it, you could say, did did the 1970s legal scholarship uh, lead to uh, to extremes? Uh, I guess, sure. But the conversation is an academic and intellectual conversation, and what we care about at Protect Your Noggin is saying that if you teach in authoritarian ways, even if you teach the truth in authoritarian ways, you do irreparable harm to your children. If your children see you screaming at your school board because they're teaching about the racist past in America, um, God bless it. I don't know where are you coming from. I, I, and if you call yourself a Christian, where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? Because, friends, uh, this is not something that I'm just trying to pick a fight with or, or, or trying to be critical. I'm sure everybody's got good intentions. They're trying to do the right thing. But we've all got to call it like we see it, even when we're having the, the alarms going off out there. <laughs> Somebody could, but, I mean, what's, what is truth if we can't talk about truth? Yeah, yeah. And if it's not true, let's, let's say it's not true, but I don't care where it comes from. That's, a, that's a, the fallacy of uh, poison in the well. You can't trust critical race theory because it comes from Marxists. I don't know. Is it, is it legitimate? And forget about a specific version of the theory. What people really don't want to do is make people feel sad that they're Americans. I don't want you to feel sad that you're American. I want to stir you up to wherever you live to really understanding, friends, that without justice upon justice... so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button and don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending you can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message please also follow us on twitter at the pynp and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter no too much.